Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. We have a doozy of a show for all of you listeners today. Such a good one that I'm going to get right to it. We are joined by my friend Gil Gross to finally dive into the year's second Grand Slam, the 2021 French Open, starting next week. That's a crazy thought for me, given my head has been fully focused on the NCAA tennis action that has unfolded these past two weeks in Orlando. But we are well aware here at Crack Rackets. It's our job to help prepare all of you listeners for the year's second Grand Slam. That's what we are going to start doing here on this podcast. This is the first of a couple of preview pods we have coming down the pipeline. I know I promised Ben Rothenberg earlier in the week. I assure you that show is coming. I know Jamie McDonald going to be joining me for a couple of draw previews as well. So rest assured, we've got three, four, maybe even five episodes of preview content to fire out for all of you listeners to Again, ensure that you have all the information you need to enjoy the 2021 French Open. Of course, the reason we are able to do that on this podcast day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, from our friends at Turn of Tennis. You guys know it's the only grip that gets tackier when you sweat. Its performance in hot and humid conditions is unmatched, and you guys know that color, that iconic bluish-purple hue can be seen on the rackets of hundreds of two Touring pros. Now, if you would like to join the Turn of Tennis family, you can call or email them to get college pricing or free samples by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800 554 3707. Again, that's sales at uniquesports.com or 800 554, excuse me, 3707. You mentioned the fact that Crack Racket sent you. They'll hook you up with free samples, treat you like family. Again, email sales at uniquesports.com or 800-554-3707. With that in mind, Gil Gross and I, what are we talking about today? A, a little bit of non-French Open news. I suppose it's French Open related. We start the show with our thoughts on Naomi Osaka's decision to forego press conferences for the duration of Roland Garros. We then get into our top men's contenders for this year's French Open. Of course, it's always Rafael Nadal's title to lose. We talk about our confidence level in Rafa entering the event. We then name the players we believe, if it's not Rafa, will be the ones holding up the trophy at the end of the two weeks. Without further ado, let's get to my conversation with the one and only Gil Gross. Joining us on the podcast once again today to help me make my return to the pro tennis ranks, you may know him as the host of the Monday Match Analysis Show. You may know him as the host of three, the tennis podcast. You may know him as my brother here on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I know him as my furry-eyed-browed nemesis, my friend, recent college graduate, Gil Gross. Gil, mazel tov, my friend. Westoff, give me the applause sound effects. <laughs> Obviously, my first question, how are you doing, Congratulations, you enjoying that post-senior year glow that I feel like all of us experience for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm great. Now, I, I don't know. It's more of like a – I don't know if there's a, a post-glow. I mean, college was pretty great. <laughs> uh, so that being over, as I'm sure you experienced, uh, has it, its positives and negatives. Certainly some positives. I get to watch more tennis now. Maybe I can – <laughs> Maybe I can add to my number of podcasts that I host. Maybe get up to your level. Well, all I ask is that you dive into the college ranks because, sincerely, it's the best beat in the business. I feel like you would fit like a hand in a glove uh, just to this entire thing. Again, it's— it I want just, in. 
Yeah, it's, there's the pettiness to it. Like, the transfer portal right now, you know the, the running joke, the hottest club in New York is from Stefan, the SNL gig. The hottest gig, I know I've tweeted out a couple times, is the transfer portal. And I just feel like that's something, an aspect that professional tennis is missing. Although, before we get into our subject here of the day, a little French Open preview content, because yes, Crack Rackets fans, we know it's right around the corner. Today is the day we start talking about it. I do want to discuss some news we had non-related to the tennis, and that, of course, is Naomi Osaka's announcement that she will not be doing press conferences for the duration of the French Open, and, you know, I do want to read her statement because I don't want to parse her words. I don't want to be, you know, implying things that aren't meant to be implied, but I also do want to discuss this more broadly, and I was fortunate enough to discuss it with Andy Katz today on the Tennis One uh, broadcast, but in case anyone missed it out, I feel like it's something we have to address here on the show. She says, hey everyone, hope you're all doing well. I'm writing this to say I'm not going to do any press during Roland Garros. I've often felt that people have no regard for athletes' mental health, and this rings very true whenever I see a press conference or partake in one. We are often sat there and asked questions that we've been asked multiple times before, or asked questions that bring doubt into our our minds, and I'm just not going to subject myself to people that doubt me. I've watched many clips of athletes breaking down after a loss in the press room, and I know you have as well. I believe that whole situation is kicking a person while they're down, and I don't understand the reasoning behind it. Me not doing press is nothing personal to a tournament, and a couple of journalists have interviewed me since I was young, so I have a friendly relationship with most of them. However, if the organizations think that they can just keep saying, do press or you're going to be fine, and continue to ignore the mental health of athletes that are the centerpiece of their uh, corporation, then I just got to laugh. Anyways, I hope the considerable amount that I get fined for this will go towards a mental health charity, XOXO, Naomi. She goes on, and it was leaked by John Wertheim, an email she sent to Roland Garros to further clarify. Hi, guys and, and Jills. I think that was, was that a reference to you? Were you the Gills? She was, She says, dear guys and Gills. So I think she was talking to you, Gill. You uh, don't know I, about my position on the FFT? <laughs> Get down with FFT. Yeah, you know By the know way, me. can I just, can, you did say John Wertheim leaked it. Somebody leaked it to John Wertheim. Yeah, thank you. You're right. It was leaked via the John Wertheim channel. Yes. Thank you. Again, are you a graduate of journalism school or something? Correcting me there. Um, look, <laughs> dear guys and Gills. Uh, I hope you are both doing well. Thank you for your efforts and working so hard to put on the French Open this year. In reference to my stance on press during RG, I want to explain the following. This is 100% nothing against the French Open or even the press members themselves. To that I say, but still. This stance is against the system requiring athletes to be forced to do press on occasions when they are suffering from mental health. I believe it is archaic and in need of reform. After this tournament, I want to work with the tours and the governing bodies to figure out how we can best compromise to change the system. Unfortunately for Roland Garros, this has happened during your tournament, which is pure coincidence and nothing personal. I have nothing for respect, but uh, but respect for your event. I'm going to focus on tennis now, but should you have any further questions, please direct all communications to Stuart, her agent at IMG, CC'd here. Thanks. Naomi. The takeaway from that, she's not doing press. Of course, press can be a distraction, and it's worth getting into the broader topic. We've both, well, I don't know if you've been in those press rooms yet. You're certainly going to start being in them moving forward now. Look, we've all seen the clips. We all know there are some journalists out there. I'm not going to name names right now because, to be honest, the people who you're thinking about, and I will name their names, the Ben Rothenbergs of the re- world, the B- Reem Abu Lails, Tumaini Karyls, the people synonymous with tennis journalism, if you think they're not the best in the business, I'm sorry, you're wrong. 
Like, I've been in those press rooms. We all saw Ben's question to Roger Federer about the ATP domestic policy and the lack of it, domestic violence policy, excuse me, and the lack of it. That's journalism 101 at its finest. That is pressing the biggest name in tennis, not being afraid of the moment, and asking him the question that under no circumstances does he want to ask. And so, again, I just want to start there to point that out, that people— there's been a lot of dunking on tennis Twitter. That's the easiest thing to do. You're never going to score easier points than when you criticize carte blanche, the media, because everyone's like, yeah, f- the media. Yeah, like, I hate them. I could do the job so much better, to which I say start a podcast. If you really think you're that good at it, do it. That's what the availability of 21st century media. Anyways, it's a loaded question, I suppose. I just gave all of that little context, but I did want to read the statement. Your thoughts on all of it, Gil? Such a complex issue with so many different angles. I've seen a lot of people taking the, well, players don't need the media anymore. This is the result. And and yes, while that's true, that's not what Osaka is talking about in her statement. It, it's completely, uh, to me, it's just off the, off the point. Um, a couple of ways to look at it. One, I think that if you really look at what Osaka is advocating for, it's that press conferences shouldn't be mandatory that players shouldn't be fined for not doing press right uh, that's if you if you actually refine it you take away everything that comes before it take away everything that comes after it and kind of shrink it down to a what is the call to action that's her call to action and i can't agree with it uh, i i wonder if if you asked players okay would you rather if, if you don't have to do press, but your prize money is going to go down 5%. Would they say yes? No, they would say absolutely not. That's that. No, I would rather answer a couple of dumb questions. And the reason why that, that hypothetical is not just a hypothetical and it's actually the world that we live in is because there is a an economic relationship between the sport being covered how many eyeballs are on the sport and how and basically what the tournament can sell when it comes to tickets when it comes to sponsorships tv rights so basically i can't agree with what Osaka is actually asking for and and what she's protesting for. What I can agree with is that speaking to the media is definitely hard on the athletes sometimes. The questions are not good enough, uh, I would say, at large, and that there should probably be more rigorous vetting when it comes to the credentialing process so that the average level of the questioning is better. And lastly, that mental health is a good cause, and I appreciate the fact that Osaka feel so passionately about shedding light on that a hundred percent and let me be clear the reaction the emotion of my reaction has nothing to do with naomi osaka because you could say this just as much about novak djokovic after the u.s open last year who strikes a line judge in the throat then because he's a bazillionaire doesn't have to you know he's embarrassed doesn't want to face the press that's cowardly absolutely cowardly by Djokovic to have that sort of happen. And I know the alligators are going to come after me. That's half the fun of, you know, whenever there's an anti... I've said it before. I think Novak Djokovic is the greatest tennis player on the men's side to ever play his peak higher than anyone else's. So I think you can criticize Djokovic, the person, without having to criticize Djokovic, the tennis player. Let's get that off the bat. But it applies to him. 
You know, Andy Katz made this point on our broadcast. It applies to Kyrie Irving. It applies to Marshawn Lynch. It applies to all of these athletes. Honestly, I feel a little bit unshackled. This is what happens when I've been outside in 90-degree heat for two weeks consecutively. I'm like, I'm just going to say what's on my mind. It's a, it's a public utility. The media is the way the public holds these people in power accountable, and that's the thing to remember. And it dates back. This is why I bring up Ben's questioning of Roger Federer. The ATP domestic violence policy, the lack thereof, is a stain on tennis. And without the media questioning these players, there will never be any attention drawn to it. Unless Ben writes that story about Alex Virev or the criticism Nicolas Bachelet-Vili receives, that story is going to go away. And, you know, I agree again. There are people who ask really bad questions. You know, everyone's going to dunk on the Hoobie Hercats clip. They keep in mind, by the way, that they didn't tell anyone that Hoobie was coming to press. And, you know, there were internet, again, the full context of that story, but let's throw that clip out there. Or the time after a victory or after a loss, someone's asked, how was your victory? There are instances where that happens. And, you know, again... The gatekeepers of press, I have not once received an ATP press credential, and I am not meaning to criticize the ATP tour, but, like, I do this for a freaking living. Like, I do two daily podcasts at this point. Like, if I am not worthy of a press credential, not to boost myself here, if you are not worthy of a press credential, if people like us aren't worthy, what are we doing here? Like, what do we want to cover the sport? Do you want there to be youthful interest? Do you want the next generation of journalists to get into tennis uh, journalism, or do you want us to just find something else to do because you're never going to allow us entry? Personnel changes, you know, and then today Racket Magazine tweeted at me and they were like, well, if we ran it, it would be so different and we would revoke everyone's credential. I don't know why I do that voice for Racket Magazine. They do some excellent work there, but sometimes there's a keyboard warrior element to what Racket Magazine does where it's just like that frustrates me beyond belief because anyone can say something shocking. Anyone can be dramatic and run up the likes and run up the retweets. You know my thoughts on this. The only people, the only person who's allowed to criticize the media is Richard Deitch, who studies it for a freaking living, (laughs) and that's his job is media media criticism. Um, She's not the only one, but you get the point I'm saying. Like, just putting Racket Magazine in charge does not solve the problem because a third-party entity, much like the WTA or the ATP this time, it would be Racket Magazine in charge of credentialing. So they get to determine they're just the arbiters of who knows enough tennis to be in those press conferences or who doesn't. No. A public press conference is the access you provide broadly to allow all of these journalists uh, the access, and again, to hold these players accountable. Because if we get in a position where the players are the ones selecting who they're answering to and what questions they're answering, that doesn't. That's how. That's the death of free speech. That's the. You know. Again, that is the true. That is the slippery slope that makes all of this go away. And like the media is the ecosystem that promotes the game. The media is the ecosystem that tells the story, drives the the narratives and the personal interest pieces. All of these different things. And it's just like, respectfully. I was at some of those early press conferences when Naomi Osaka was not the Naomi Osaka she is now, and like. That she is never going to find a bigger advocate for her than Ben or Rima Buleo or Courtney Nguyen, who is so exceptional at her job. And, like, they protected her when they were young. They could have taken swipes at her. They could have put these ridiculous burdens on her, all these different things. And they didn't do that. And to now paint all of us with a broad brush, again, the straw man of it's the media's fault. The media adds all this stress. Again, 
I just vehemently disagree, and I understand. I'm never going to argue with the mental health aspect because far be it from me to say what Naomi Osaka is or isn't going through. But again, to the broader point, this is a trend we've seen now, not just in tennis. I brought up Lynch. I brought up Kyrie Irving that we've seen in other sports as well. And it's just not acceptable, right? A, if you disagree with your coverage, you have a platform, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, to go get your own message out there. But B, why do you make all of the money? Because the media pays for the rights. Because the media drives the interest. The media decides to put you on TV. And all we ask for is you give us five minutes of time every other day, every three weeks that you play an event. And like, look, there are parts of every job. When I don't like that part of my job, if I don't do it, I get fired. Most people, when they don't do it, they get fired. These athletes are in a position of privilege that they can just eat the fine. And I apologize. This is a long rant. I promise I'm going to let you speak here now. I just think it's ridiculous. I love the fire. Uh, <laughs> um, what is it? It's 948. When are you? No. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, uh, I'm actually uh, – Osaka would not be – I think your point is even – a little bit more prudent with Osaka because if nobody ever gave her a microphone, she wouldn't be making $55 million. Actually, mm-hmm. she might be making $5 million because that's her on-court earnings. The other 50 <laughs> would be in question uh, because she was tremendous with the microphone in front of her. The people around her did not make her go through media training. They didn't want her to, to be trained. And it was the... They wanted her to be authentic. Right. Exactly. It was the best decision they could have possibly made because she... Uh, relates to so many people with how she's transformed from someone who who is really kind of shy and and introverted into someone who whose confidence kind of rose and rose and rose and then she she became someone who was outspoken enough to find her voice and wear seven different masks and win the U.S. Open title. So that that transformation that happened in front of our eyes through the media, uh, Osaka's interviews with Tom Rinaldi that went viral, viral, viral. Uh, in the name of of social justice, all those things are uh, make make Osaka an interesting person for this uh, an interesting person when it comes to shutting out the media because the media really did help build her into what she is. With that being said, the if I'm going to disagree with you one spot, it's here. I think the players or athletes have very little moral obligation to the media, very, very little. But you got to be willing to give up some of your some of your money. And uh, if you're willing to give up that money, I have no problem. You don't need to talk to the media. Shell up. That's fine. But do you understand the implication there? Do you understand that that push and pull? Um, and as long as they do, that's fine. So you know, it, it, it's so. Osaka's going to pay the fines. It's her right. I don't think – I think the media is going to be fine, right? They're going to be able to cover her matches. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, the the articles will get just as many clicks. Uh, but in the long term, in the grand scheme of things, uh, might GQ magazine not cover – might might they not send someone to go cover the French Open because Naomi Osaka is not going to speak to the press? Yeah, that might happen. Might it be a reason why some people who don't always cover tennis, might they not cover tennis? And if everyone did what Naomi Osaka is doing, would that have negative implications towards the sport? Yes. So, uh, you know, I think in the long run, this might not be the worst thing in the world because it might, quite frankly, sort of be a 
be a go away thing. But I don't understand what kind of press conference reform is actually realistic that that could come from this. I, I don't know. I agree with you completely, and I appreciate you're right. They have no obligation to us. But you don't like Christopher Clary's story, and I'm just naming names here. You don't like Ben's story. You don't like Courtney's story. Tell us why you don't like it. Being on the college tennis beat here these past two weeks in Orlando, the best part of it was having these coaches come to me and say, Alex, I heard what you said. Alex, that was bullshit, and let me tell you why. And, like, that makes me a better podcaster. That made our products better the rest of the way here in Orlando. And it's just like... You want, And again, this is one person, one incident, one story. It's a hot leadoff here that we spent a solid 15. This is we're back in pro tennis, baby. It's great to have you here, Gil. There's no one I would rather do this with. But it's just, again, it's a slippery slope. I agree with you. And it's just like we ask for five. Two things can be true. I want to emphasize this again. Questions can be bad. But the solutions I've seen floating out there are personnel changes, not structural reform. You want different journalists in the room. You want different arbiters of who gets credentials and not. That doesn't face change the underlying problem if it's the type of access and the type of stress being caused by the media, right? Right. Uh, no way. Uh, that's like yeah. saying, well, we need to fix something like, and, and I could choose any ism right now, but I'm going to go with sexism. That's like saying, we're going to fix sexism. Let's get rid of all the sexists. You can't do it. You can't. You have yeah. to change the system. Okay. You yeah. cannot make any sort of changes. Like, will journalists' questions be any different at this year's French Open because Osaka is is making this protest? No, right? Yeah, well, it's just going to be that they're all going to get asked about. They're going to ask about this, right? <laughs> yeah. But but you are never in. Uh, there is. It's basically impossible to improve the quality of questioning unless you want to, uh, unless you want to do something that's going to have other consequences and and some negative consequences, which would be saying, oh, uh, you're not with the you're not with the New York Times. Um, Sorry, no credential for you, right? If you're going to yeah. really limit it to people who who you know are are professionals and experienced, it, you could do it, but there's going to be other problems. You're going to mm-hmm. be missing you're going to be missing demographics that you You're going to box us all out. Yeah. You're going to box us all out. It's ridiculous. Yeah. No, oh, 100% and it's just again, we're done with this topic. It, it's it's been covered by every angle. I will just add, I have yet to see a feasible solution offered. I'm curious if you have either, because I the truth is I haven't, and that's why I tweeted no. that this morning, because it's like, what's the alternative? I haven't seen it. No, I, I haven't. I've seen some people who have been thoughtful about how the landscape has changed in terms of how an athlete can use their own platform, yes. in terms of how the, the, the media megaphone is less vital than it used to be. Yeah, that's true. But have I have I seen thoughtful press conference reform? No, I haven't. I agree. But with that in mind, again, two 25, 22-year-olds talking about the media. Don't we love that here to start the podcast? <laughs> I missed you, Gil. It's good to have I you back. And again, I should say also, I hope Jenna's doing well. I wanted to ask that as my opening question, but we just got right into it. I assume Jenna's doing well as well? Yes, she's great. Okay, that is awesome to hear. Yes. Well, with that in mind, you know who else is doing well? All of us tennis fans, as we get ready for the start of this 2021 French Open, what Gil and I are going to be doing here on tonight's podcast is talking about the contenders on the men's side. And of course, you look through history, it's the Rafael Nadal show. Only three other men have won the French Open, I think, since 2005. They've all only won it one time. The rest of the time, it's all Rafa. Maybe even be since 2004. Uh, I may be a year off here, but Federer's won one. 
Djokovic is 1-1, Wawrinka is 1-1. The rest of the time, it's Rafael Nadal. So we know the script. We know this is Rafa's tournament to lose always. That's where we're going to start. We're going to talk about how confident we are in Rafa. Then we're going to go on to list our top five contenders to potentially usurp him here in Roland Garros over the next two weeks. But again, Let's start with the Rafa component, and of course, going to be a lot of tennis abstract love on this podcast, and we were joking about it before, and I was devastated to open my computer, type in the letter T today, and have the default not be tennis abstract. It was actually the Tennessee men's tennis schedule, which I'm like, oh man, I really have been on the college beat for (laughs) a healthy amount of time here, Uh, but of course, let's start out with Rafael Nadal, who of course, as I mentioned, he's what, 12 time? Is it 30? I think it's 12 time for 13 uh, time now 13 is going for 14 going for 14 indeed that's the, the freaking... tie with Sampras dude at one major yeah <laughs> oh my, I didn't even think of it like that that's a great way of framing things and look Rafael Nadal 32 and 7 in his last 52 weeks you narrow that down to clay he's 23 and 3 those three losses Schwartzman in Rome last year in the quarterfinals of course he got Schwartzman back at the uh, French Open. He also lost that opening match this year, quarterfinals Monte Carlo, or opening match, I mean that opening event on clay to Andre Rublev in three sets. He lost in Madrid, very different surface than we're going to see here in Paris to Alex Zverev, Lord Voldemort in straight sets. But you look at the other things he's done. Wins Barcelona, three-set victory over Stefano Tsitsipas, one of the five best matches of the year thus far. Certainly, it's in the conversation. He also goes to Rome, gets that revenge win over Zverev, beats Sinner, Shapovalov, Novak Djokovic in three-set, beats our boy Riley Opelka, which I always got to give a shout-out to. Again, question number one I have to ask you, where we're going to start. And the problem is starting here, you're like, I don't have to listen to the rest of the podcast. You definitely do, because it could happen this season. But where we start, how confident are you that it's just Rafa's to lose? And, you know, again, what are we doing these two weeks, if not just getting ready for him to go to title town? The the confidence is pretty high, despite the fact that he's just a couple of points here and there against Denis Shapovalov, um, for example, in in Rome, um, and then and then Barcelona. I'm I'm kind of oh, and then against Barcelona uh, against Tsitsipas, he's just a couple of points away from having zero titles heading into the French Open, it, and it it really has been a bumpy path. But all of the, I don't know, you know, when you see it all come together in that Rome final, and then you think, okay, he's got another week in Paris to develop that kind of momentum to round even further into form. Rome was the the Rome final was the first match that Nadal actually served well in. So all of clay court season, I saw the forehand and the backhand, the ground game just getting better and better and better. But I'm like, he's still not serving well. He's still not serving well. When's he going to serve well? What's going on? Still not serving well. And then boom, serve plus one masterpiece from front to back against Djokovic. Um, and then it's like, okay, he's there. He, you know, he's at that level that you know that the the field probably isn't going to be able to reach. So I'm confident. No, it's it's a fair point. And again, shout out to our friends at Tennis Abstract. The numbers to your point on the serve because I think that's the place where we have to start for Rafa. 
this season, and again, it's a limited sample size. He's played, I think, 21 matches here in this 2021 season. He's 18-3 and three overall. Let me make sure that's true just again because it's tough to filter out for the surfaces. Yada, yada, yada. Yes, he is indeed 18-3. and three. You look for him in terms of those percentages. He's making 65.3% of his first serves. That's better than it's been the past two seasons, but still uh, 3% lower than his career average. You look at his first serve win percentage, 72%. Again, that's right around his career average. It's 72.1. He's been good, not great with the first serve. That 55.5% second serve percentage is his lowest number since the 2015 season. And we are maybe at even 26. I think it's 2015. And of course, what we remember about 2015, he lost that year at the French Open to Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals. And just, again, whether it was his match against, uh, you know, Zvira that he lost this year, he made, uh, he won only 50% of his second serves. In the loss to Rublev, he won only 41.7% of his second serves. In the loss to Tsitsipas, and I know that was a hard court match, but, you know, again, he was still struggling on serve in all of these matches. You look at the more broader stat, his hold percentage, 84.8. That's also the lowest number for him since 20. 2015-2016 range, that's absolutely been an issue. And now he's still Rafael Nadal. He still finds ways to dig, scrap, but it just felt like in particular, you know, in Monte Carlo especially, but also, you know, in Barcelona, especially through the first two and a half sets of that Tsitsipas match, he was so consistently on his back foot against Rublev as well. It felt like he was always being pressured, and what makes Rafa so special, especially on the dirt, is just his ability to, you know, be in the outer thirds of the court and, you know, find that forehand pass or the two-passing shot combo where he dips the first one at your feet and he moves so well, so that second ball, if you give him a second look, he's hitting by you. I think, though, you know, again, I test versus the numbers because the numbers can only guide us so much that the numbers reflect the struggles via the eye test. That's the thing that's most concerning to me, Gil, is that it's just like the numbers back up the struggles. Yeah, he he just wasn't able to dictate for much of the clay court season with his first forehand. Yes, Um, yes. It's not with Nadal, when, when he's struggling on serve, it's not like, where are the aces? Where are the service winners? It's really, where's the... The plus one ball. Yeah, where's that dominant plus one ball that's either going to win the point outright or is going to give him a a sort of stranglehold on the point where he's not going to hit any more backhands until you're you're toast, you're done. Um, That's what was missing. And I think it was a combination of not just the second serve and the first serve for that matter, being a little bit less confident, being, you know, having a little bit less sting on it, but also that that first forehand being played safer with less confidence um, and even making errors off, off some some key first balls. But again, like it just felt like by the end there, he was he was where he needed to be against Djokovic in the Rome final. Yeah, he played really, really well in that match. And you know what's crazy? Yearly ELO, which is, again, who you play. I, I haven't explained ELO rating in three weeks to my listeners. They might actually have forgotten. <laughs> They're like, what is this ELO rating? Who is Adnan ELO? Tell me more, Alex. But yearly ELO rating, I don't know if you've looked at it recently. Where do you think Rafa ranks this season? Uh, so all which again, surfaces? yearly is all surfaces mm-hmm. and only 2021 mm-hmm. results. That's such a tough. I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to get this embarrassingly wrong. Uh, I'm going to go with like fourth. You know what's crazy? He's first. 
I was as shocked by that number as I would have been. <laughs> I, like, I thought he would be a firster. And it's interesting because Tsitsipas, 32-8, and eight, which, by the way, he's played 40 matches this year. How freaking nuts is that for Tsitsipas? I'm sure we'll talk about yep. him in a little bit. But even with these struggles... I mean, it's the clay court portion of the year. And is this 2005 from 2009 where he was like 142 and 5 in five seasons of clay court tennis? No, it's not that Rafael Nadal. It's not even the 2010 to 2014 Rafa who was still the best of the best on the dirt, but he's gotten the wins. And to your point, he seems to be peaking at exactly the right moment. You mentioned the fact he he dropped, I think, what, two sets? In his run to the Rome title and in Barcelona, he struggled so mightily in his first two matches against Ivashka and Nishikori and probably should have lost that match, if we're being honest, to Tsitsipas in the final, but just manages to scrap and claw his way to another victory. And I mentioned this fact. I, I really am. I, I miss pro tennis. I just want all of you listeners to know that I miss talking about it. But I always talk about, you know, the list of the players. When you have a guy who is in the top uh, t- uh, top 10, more specifically, but top 15 in both uh, return, uh, in both, uh, excuse me, uh, hold percentage and break percentage, that's a nice metric I like to use because usually there's only four or five, sometimes at most six guys who are in both the top 10, top 15 of those categories. Rafa's one of those six, and you look for him. I believe he is eighth right now amongst top 50 players in hold percentage. His number this season, while down for him, is still pretty quality. I believe it's at 86.2%. You look for him in terms of break percentage this season. Rafa, number two behind only Diego Schwartzman. He's at 34.8%, which is, by the way, as good as it's been throughout his career. I mean, you know, can I just interrupt you? What is Schwartzman hold percentage? Like, 40%? Forty <laughs> percent. Like so, he, he can't. Let's he can't look here. He's not winning any matches. Diego he's not winning Schwartzman, any matches. Fifty-four, nine, forty-eight, forty-seven, forty-six. He's forty-fifth in hold percentage amongst top fifty players. Seventy point seven percent. That's not good. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Here's the group he's hanging out with: Kesmenovic, Fonini. Basilashvili, Monfils, and Pear. That's the 70s range. That is <laughs> that is not a group you want to hang out no. with. We talk about the top 15 club. That's like the, I maybe should take three weeks off and call the year club. But, I mean, look for Rafa, even with the numbers diminishing, it's still his surface. And we saw it. The fact that he was even able to scrap out that match in Rome in three sets and uh, the fact that he was able to do it as well against, I believe, Tsitsipas in Monte Carlo as well. Uh, not Monte Carlo, excuse me, Barcelona. That's a testament to Rafa being Rafa. And the thing is, you don't just have to beat him in two sets. You have to beat him in three sets here in Paris. And again, he hasn't played since May 10th in Rome. He's had some time to rest up all of the nicks and bruises. He's back home here, Paris in spring. We saw how unbeatable he looked just, what, six months ago, seven, eight months ago when they played this last French Open in, uh, in what was it, October, September? October. I, it's all yep. blended together at this point. I, I don't even know when my birthday is. I don't know what any of this is. But, again, a, a percentage-wise, would you be I, – I would be – I like – shocked is the wrong word. 70 percent's my number. Like I think like if we play this French Open set, 10 times, he wins at seven of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly taking him against the field again, yeah. which is like the constant – you know, I guess what, we probably take that question for granted because like – 100 percent. Do people realize that at none of the other three majors, is that a respectable question ever? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> no, um, except for maybe Australia. <laughs> except for like maybe there. Maybe. Yeah. And even then, I was pretty sure Djokovic was going to lose this year until he didn't. <laughs> right. So I'm I'm taking I'm taking the doll again against the field. Um, you know, draw doesn't really matter at this point. We can get into it. But you know what? I I, I guess I'll close on this before we get into the rest of the field. I'm not loving the field this year in the sense that a couple of things could have happened. A couple of things, you know, looked like they might happen in 2020. And fast forward to now, the way the landscape of the rest of the men's game is looking, it's not all that threatening to Nadal. It's almost like if not Nadal, then who? And you have a lot of trouble answering that question, but let's let's go for it. No, I love it, and I appreciate you bringing up the draw. I almost forgot for a second that they came out. We probably should say that here when talking about the Rafa section. He's the number three seed, which is a crime. Um, like The fact that Rafa is not just penciled in at number one until he retires or someone beats him two years in a row. Like We're better than that. I feel like we can solve that issue right now. But, I mean, look. Sinner's a potential fourth round. Rublev a potential quarterfinal. I'm so mad. I'm so mad about Sinner. Devastating. Like, can, please, like, can he? St- can we stop this? Put Sinner <laughs> somewhere else in the darn draw. Oh, no, My that's God. half the fun though, because that matchup. I mean, Sinner's got the forehand of Rafa, right? It's just a righty version, and it's like that matchup does seem to bring out the best in in Rafa like he does seem to get amped for that matchup in particular and so from a fan perspective I agree we're amped and from a sin man perspective it's tough but he is on the Djokovic Federer side and it's just like getting into that final if it's he has to go through Sinner Rublev Djokovic will he have enough left in the tank is that something you're at all concerned about no because I think you fall into the trap of like saying (laughs) Yeah, you look at the draw and you're like, well, there's all these great players. Let me list yeah. them off. Well, you know they're going to like play each other and then one <laughs> is going to win and then the other is going to be out, which it, it, it drives me kind of – it just makes me laugh about kind of the some of the draw rhetoric. And, and you know, everyone knows that the big three fan bases, their favorite activity is to fight – over who has the easiest draw to try to like discredit the other. It's like, do you guys realize this is a draw? Like, are we not like, are you, are you actually trying to argue that in the hundreds of majors, these guys play like one of them is going to get lucky with the draw. No. Anyway, uh, I don't think Nadal, let me just pull up my path or the path that I have him going through. I mean, it's for me, it's center Karatsev. Um, yeah, Ooh, I forgot about the Karatsev man. I did forget yeah, about him. He's lingering there. But yeah, and Rublev really got a got a rough one if you if you look at uh, Rublev's <laughs> path. So I have Karatsev over Rublev, and then it's Nadal's path to the semifinal. I have uh, Gaz K. Well, let me not skip the first round. That's rude. Uh, Popperin, <laughs> uh, Gaz K, Cam Nori, Yannick Sinner, Aslan Karatsev. Like it's not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Even though I think Sinner really challenges him. Yeah, by the way, Sinego's been playing damn well as well. And if he serves big on the right day, like, I'm not saying he's going to beat Rafa, but he's absolutely, he could take a tiebreaker, maybe take a second tiebreaker. All of a sudden, Rafa finds himself in a fifth set that's very much in the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, again, I've seen Rafa lose three times this season. When was the last time Rafa lost three times on clay in a year before going to the French Open? I believe you'd have to go all the way back to, I want to say, 2015. 
was the last time that happened. He lost to Fonini, Djokovic, and Fonini again, and Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka, in the lead-up to that Roland Garros. He's the favorite. We agree. It's, it's 70% feels like a good number, by the way. And also, DraftKings, our friends over there, uh, have him minus 125, which feels a little low. Like, I'm just saying, usually it's minus 250, 300 range. What's the, uh, let me get the implied probability on Ooh, that. Ooh, yes. Give me that implied probability. That is what I am talking <laughs> about. Again, minus 125 here in the field. But, you know, again, to put the bow on the conversation, Rafa's been, I mean, he's 14-2 and two this year on clay. Um, I mean, so he's only lost twice on clay. Excuse me, not three times. He's lost three times this year in total. The thing was, like, Zverev did serve through him, right? Like, Zverev was— In Madrid, though. In yeah, Madrid. that's true. That's very, very true. And the surfaces play so different. But, I mean, here's the thing. R- Rublev—I uh, th- I found what Rublev did interesting. Rublev went down the line on every single back. Which is what I—like, again, he out rafa Rafa. He's like, oh, you think you're going to go down the line on me? No, 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 no. I'm going to go down the line on you, and we're just going to play this game all day. And, like, I've never seen Rafa lose that game. And he did lose that game. And again, there's just a lot of dangerous lingerers. And with that in mind, let's get into the broader conversation. If it's not Rafael, do you have an implied probability for 55. me? 55.6. 55.6. That feels incredibly low. Like, right? That be, He's only winning it half the time? Yeah, I would say it's a little low because yeah. I would have probably said 60% instead of 70. Okay. And you know how the futures market is. Yeah. like. They don't want to make that number Appealing. too good. They'd rather make it too bad and nobody throws money on it. Um, but if you, if you really think Nadal's going to win, I think you'd make more money if you rolled over your profits every single match. But like when it comes to something like that. But minus one twenty five is low. Like that's appealing. Like minus one twenty five, it's essentially an even bet. And Rafa even going into a French Open, what do they know that I don't? That's the thing is I'm just like I'm sniffing around there because that's the only reason I bring up the odds is that just feels feels a little low. But again, this gets us to the broader conversation. We mentioned it. Djokovic is on his size. The greatest player of all time, Aslan Karatsev, is on his time. Oh, you thought I was going to say Roger Federer? No, no, no. We know the GOAT is Karatsev. Come on. We've all been watching this season. <laughs> uh, Federer on his side. I feel like you have to throw that name out there, although – you know, how badly do I want to pay? It's a take for another time. It's a take for another time. I just, if I never had to watch Roger Federer play Rafael Nadal and Clay again, I'd be just fine with it. I just want to be very, very clear because don't we all know what that match looks like at this point? This is, it's yes, a tangent for another now, time. Save now, it for three. Yeah, yeah. Save it for three. Yeah. I agree. Okay, we'll save it for three. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, the little plug there for you, Gil. But. If it's not Rafa, is it Djokovic on his side? Is it Sinner? Is it Sinego, someone who catches him early or something like that? Let's start at the top of the list. Your number one threat to beat Rafa or perhaps your number one threat just to win this French Open if it's not Rafael Nadal. Stefano Tsitsipas. Oh, I knew we were going to get into him eventually, and I, I always enjoy it when we disagree. I have a slight disagreement with you here, but make the case. All right. He, uh, look— the forehand can go toe-to-toe with anyone on this surface. People don't realize how precise it is, how spinny it is mostly. I think the precision does get its uh, its shine. Uh, but that's the weapon you need. Physically, he's just become a, a beast. Yeah. 
Uh, he's so imposing now. He's moving and defending so well. And um, the the second serve is good. The kick serve, the first serve he gets run out of. He has a transition game to finish points against the best defenders on this surface. Um, and then mentally, he's just beginning to handle the big moments with more frequency. That's the pl- that's the spot where I would ding him more than anywhere else. But uh, the key with Clay is that he returns much better. And that's where we see on other surfaces where he's just not getting he's not getting enough returns in play. He's not giving himself a chance on his return games. On clay, he takes a step back, he lets the court slow slow the ball down for him. He takes bigger cuts and uh he becomes a he becomes a real problem all around. And look, I obviously the question is who's a bigger threat to Nadal, him or Djokovic? Nadal, like the the Nadal Djokovic matchup has become so predictable here. That's the knock on it, and I, I think that Rafa should be more scared of Tsitsipas because he understands exactly what he needs to do against Novak. We'll get more. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to Novak more in a moment, but uh, I think that Tsitsipas is more likely to uh, spurn an upset. No, it's again, it's a really good call, and I talk about that top 10 club. Tsitsipas misses the top 10 club, uh, both top 10 serve and return. If you do it across all surfaces, if you do it just on clay, he is very much in that club, number eight returner by break percentage. Uh, And you look at just the numbers throughout his career. For his career on hard courts, an 18.6 break percentage, which to to quote our brethren, that's Nishkeet, my friend. That is not very good. You look for him on clay in his career in ATP level matches, 27.8%. That gets you into that top 10 club, and it speaks to the fact, and we've said it here before, he can just swing through the backhand on clay on his return in ways he can't on a hard court because it's that much harder to pressure your opponent with a power on the serve on this surface. And again, did he beat Rafa on clay when they played earlier this season? No, but he came damn close to doing it uh, when they played in Barcelona. It really did felt like that was a match he could have won, and you look for him in particular. I mean, he won 75% of his first serve points against Rafael freaking Nadal on clay. Do you know how difficult that is to do? I, I venture to say... You know, actually, it's funny. I'm looking this year. Uh, Popperin managed to do that against him. Zverev managed to do that against him as well this season. So that's happened three times in this year. It happened against Opelka as well. But that's kind of an Opelka factor. That's an outlier. That's not going to count. But he's got the weapons. And more importantly, he's got the balls. Like the decisiveness to be like, you know what? F*** it. I'm swinging through this ball. And like, at least if I lose, I go down swinging with no regrets. And... That's an immeasurable quality that you need to have when you're upsetting or at least attempting to upset Rafael Nadal or any of the, uh, with all due respect to Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal or Djokovic at this point of their careers at the majors. And then, you know, the other thing he benefits from, he's not on their side of the draw. And he's in the Medvedev quarter of the draw. Certainly, if you're going to take a top four seed here, you imagine Medvedev's probably the guy you'd want to face more than any uh, than Team Nadal or Djokovic. And you know, again, Shardy, 
does have the big first serve, big forehand combo that may sometimes give him difficulties. And a rematch, by the way, between Sebastian Corda, Pedro Martinez, Portero. That was one of my favorite matchups last year. I think I was a third rounder. Uh, he would face the winner of that next. His seeds, you know, Isner is usually a bad matchup for Tsitsipas. And then, of course, again, when you think about it, we're on clay. Uh, Rayonich or Crano Busta, that feels like a winnable match seed-wise. Now, are we going to pick Christian Guerin over Daniil Medvedev? We'll get to that conversation perhaps a bit later, but I just think he's confident right now. He's swinging so freely, and again, you look for Tsitsipas and what he's been able to accomplish this season. I mentioned that number is freaking ridiculous. The fact that he has over 30 wins already here. He's 32-8 and eight here in 2021. You look at what he's been able to do this season. I think the losses really tell the story. Seven of the eight are to Medvedev, Rublev, Nadal, Kasper Ruud, uh, Djokovic, you know, Zverev. He lost to Hubi Hercots in Miami, but everyone lost to Hubi Hercots in Miami, and that was a match that went three sets and was just a weird match. Should have uh, won it. Yeah, let's be honest here. Definitely, you know, I mean, yeah, but that that's that's your that's where I got to kind of the, the mental thing. Okay. You know, my biggest thing, if, if Tsitsipas gets to a place where he has an opportunity to win this title, I would question whether or not he's actually ready to do that in the mental department because we've seen normally these guys have to do pull a Dominic team. They have to get there a couple times, lose, then maybe you're ready uh, after you've experienced it, after you've felt it. Now, you know, Tsitsipas just won his first Masters, but he's never been in a major final. Mm -hmm. It's a fair point to make. Where I'd push back is he has at least beaten Rafael Nadal at a Grand Slam. And I know that was on hard courts. And it was in Australia. And obviously, he immediately lost his next match to Daniil Medvedev in straights. But to have that visualization. And then to also have played Rafa really freaking close in Barcelona. Those things help the mental side. Because I agree with you. Until a next-gen gets over the hurdle, beats a big three-player in a Grand Slam, no one's going to believe it's going to happen. But at least with Tsitsipas, it feels much more in the realm of possibility than some of the other guys. And so, again, he was my number 1B. I do have a tie for number 1 because I break the rules here always. You know that. That's the fun of being the podcast host. Um, But he's 1B, and if you're ready to transition, my friend, I would say number 1A for me is Novak Djokovic, who, you know, again— has he been sensational this year? No, he hasn't. He kind of I like I still can't believe he won that Australian Open. Like I really just for him to beat Medvedev the way he did in that final in straight sets and beat Karatsev in the semifinals after struggling all tournament long was befuddling. Of course, he lost that three-set match to Karatsev, lost to Dan Evans in Monte Carlo and you know, in both of those matches you just kept waiting for him to wake up and he never did, but I thought, you know, he beats Davidovich Fokina handily in Rome. He beats Tsitsipas three sets. That was a really good victory for Novak, particularly when he was down and out in that match. And then, you know, just to, I think that same day he beat Sinego, right? I think that was the match that they doubleheader. And then yeah. to do that, play Rafa as close as he did and dominate him in that. I've never seen anyone do that to Rafael Nadal uh, on a clay court. Oh, that's not true. But the way Rafa, just again, the way Djokovic worked him around the court. And I mean, look, here in this 2021 season, you look for Djokovic's record now. He's been, you know, he's pretty damn good. 18-3 and as well. 
Curious your thoughts on his decision to play Belgrade this week. Also curious, again, your thoughts on his form heading into this. Well, I I, I kind of hate the fact that he's playing Belgrade. I, I <laughs> You know, I just look at the history of players who make that decision, and it's not good. Um, I think you and I talked about how players who um, went deep at last year's Western and Southern Open, which was a week before the U.S. Open, they did not fare well. Um, and then we talked about uh, the, the same thing was true. I don't know if it was for for Roland Garros in 2020 with with Rome, but um, basically uh, Winston Salem before the U.S. Open is the kind of the traditional week before the major. I think back to John Isner and how when he was a top ten player mm-hmm. on his favorite surface, he couldn't do damage at the U.S. Open because he kept wanting to play Winston-Salem, and I understand it's close to home. Um, and appearance yeah. fees, let's just say it. Oh, and appearance fees. I, you're right. Thank you for uh, for throwing that there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't like that decision. With that being said, he's breezing through these matches so easily, he might as well be going for a light hit on the practice courts. Yeah, no. First of all, I had a conversation off the record, I'm not going to say who with, about the shadow economy that is appearance fees. I'm like three more good conversations from that article becoming a reality, Gail. So just a little update for our Crack Rackets listeners. But the difference is, I mean, he plays Meringue, beats Coria 1-0 today. Like he's got Andre Martin. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he's got Andre Martin next. Like you're right. It's just... I, I, it's his home event. Like, I, I posed this question, and people were like, so, they were like, what do you mean? There's no way he values a home <laughs> event more than a Grand Slam. It's like, well, if if you, where you, what's your hometown exactly, Gil? Where do the gross parents uh, reside currently? Westchester, New York. I mean, I'm 40 minutes away from the U.S. Open, so. Uh, yeah, but let's kinda... say there was an event literally in Westchester. And okay. it was like, hey, it's the week before the U.S. Open, but it's the Westchester Invitational, and we would like you to come play, Gil. Like, the same deal for me if it was the West Bloomfield Invitational, and I didn't play. Not only My mom, she'd be like, Alex, you don't understand. Your grandmother will kill you if you do not play this tournament. And, like, for him to be who he is in Serbia with that country, you can understand the decision, right? Uh, yes, but there was a Belgrade one. He yeah. <laughs> Belgrade one. Like I, I'm not point. right. I mean, if this this it's is not Belgrade West two. two, it's not West. Yeah, 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 true. <laughs> anyway, should should I hit your the second part of your question? Yeah, please, 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 please. I haven't loved him on clay since 2016. It's fair. I, I haven't. You know, from 2011 to 2016, I will never slander that version of Clay Djokovic. Never in my life. Uh, but ever since coming back from the the hiatus and then the elbow problem, I, I, he's been he's been really good. He's been one of the best players in the world. But what I felt is that if if someone, if an elite player plays great against Novak Djokovic, they might win. And what's happened? He played a 50-50 match with Dominic Thiem in 2019, lost it. He played a 50-50 match with Tsitsipas in 2020, won it uh, after Stefanos had some some leg problems in the fifth set. So I, I just think he's uh, he is now he's been beatable on clay. He's been that way for a bit. Was his Rome form encouraging? Yes, his Rome form is almost always encouraging. He has 11 Rome finals. He has five French Open finals. So as good as he looked in Rome, I'm going to not brush it to the side, but I'm not going to, it's not visual gospel to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, can his mental toughness 
you know, is that still a, an incredible weapon for him no matter what surface he's on? Yes. Is his defense and his consistency still exceptional? Yes. Uh, but his offense just kind of falls off on clay ever, mm -hmm. you know, in this, in this post elbow problem era, uh, the forehand, the kick serve, just not quite good enough. And I think a player like uh team or Titi pass or Nadal peaking gives Novak a lot of problems. Now you look at his portion of the draw, by the way, Sandgren, that's not an easy first round match on clay. Physically, he's going to push Djokovic. Now again, does he have the weapon to beat Djokovic? I'm not saying he does, but that's just a physical match first round. And I kind of love that for Novak. Me too. I, I think Novak is like, wow, this can be great. It's going to be a great hit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that kind of player. Okay, quick tangent since it's you. I, this is something I ask far too many people. People of the same country. So let's just say in this instance, I, I always use Roger and Sanwa Franca as the example. When was the last time a, uh, 2 p.m. on like a Tuesday in December where Roger just texts Stan Wawrinka he's like yo you want to go hit for an hour like yeah like the way you and I would text each other like hey you want to go hit the courts so, like get a nice hour and a half sweat do you think that's ever happened at like in the past 10 years like any player yeah just any um, two professional players are like yo you want to go hit I don't know like IMG there's a lot of players at IMG you think maybe yeah like I don't know you, you would you would have a what do you think? I, this is my theory. I'm just like, I would love for the, I just want to see that text. Oh, I just want to be like, no, the answer is no. There's no freaking way that ever happens. They're like, we know. I Roger Federer's like, I measure my hit stand. You right, know that. right. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyways, to get back to the draw, Umber struggled with his form of late. That's the seed in his immediate section before you get to the fourth round. Demonauer, Gofen, they've been good, not great. Now, we see Chechenato beat him before on clay, but, you know, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I, I, I do have Chechenato making it to the Djokovic match. 100% that's a possibility, and that's why I mentioned that name. But even then, you know, Berrettini's the interesting one in the quarterfinals. With all due respect to FAA, who would also make it interesting. I just think Berrettini's got that it factor where it's like, my match is on my racket. Like, if I serve well, if I'm hitting the plus one ball, I can beat my opponent. But I do think, again, in terms of the quarters here in this section, like Roger Federer's his top eight seed. Of all of the top eight seeds, that's the one you want to draw right now, just given his lack of matches and his lack of form. That's why he's 1A to me, because I do think he's going to get a crack at Rafa, and Rafa's section's really, really tough, and if Rafa gets beat up at all in that first week of play, the biggest beneficiary would be Novak Djokovic. Yeah, um, I don't think Berrettini, uh, the, I'm actually going to support your point here, I, I, I don't think Berrettini and Djokovic, uh, I don't think they match up well. Tough mm -hmm. to go off the head-to-head because -head they played in London indoors, and yeah. but Djokovic did smoke them. Uh, Berrettini won three games. Um, <laughs> but I think the player who's going to beat Novak is going to grind him down. He's going to make him take initiative. Novak's going to be so happy to take Berrettini's first serve, look at it as a challenge to try to get it to his backhand, neutralize the plus one game. It's it's just up Novak's wheelhouse. Anytime Novak can defend the whole match and win, I think Novak loves that. He relishes that. Um, not the whole match. I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think Novak's through pretty easily. It's just like Rafa Djokovic, we have seen this. What is going to times. change here? Yeah. What is going to change here? The same would be true if they were playing tomorrow at, at the Australian Open. And if I'm going to get specific, it's 
point zero through four points shots rather. Mm-hmm. Rafa Nadal has absolutely obliterated Novak now two matches in a row on clay in point zero through four shots. Not even close. And somehow Novak needs to change that dynamic. And I really don't know how he's going to do it. I, I can't argue with you. That's a very fair point. We have seen the match a million times. I do think Novak's gone after his first forehand a little bit more of late. And I do think that's, again, I wish I had a number to prove that for all of you. I don't right now. That's one of those eye test observations. Yep. You're shaking your head to same. you agree? Uh, I agree, especially in Rome. Uh, in, in Rome, I thought. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so he went after, and so he's aware of what needs to, the adjustment he needs to make uh, to get through. But is he number two for you? I mentioned it. he's number one A for me. Tsitsipas is one B. Is he two on your list, or is he a little lower? Djokovic, two. Okay, so let's get to our number threes then. And again, the floor is yours. If it's not Nadal, it's not Tsitsipas, it's not Djokovic, the person it'll be is? Hold on. Okay, I like <laughs> I it. It's, it's going to be uh, Alexander's Zverev. Uh, okay. And this is always, let's be clear, we have to talk about Zverev. I know this is always the sticky situation, but yep. he's on. He's in the draw. He's playing right now. We did the opening media criticism for 15 minutes. You can rewind back to that if you want to hear that <laughs> once again. But yeah, hit that back 15 seconds like a bazillion times at this point, and you're going to get to that part of the conversation. But look. Shout out to uh, Spotify. Shout out or, yeah, or Apple. Or, I mean, or Apple. Look, or I'm, Apple. I will very much hold myself out to whomever would like to super if, if you want to give me the bill simmons deal spotify i'll take it i don't want the joe <laughs> rogan deal because that's not my brand of person but i'll take the simmons deal anyways you look for zero qualifiers in his first two matches his seeds by section dan evans would be his first matchup then bautista agut who again does he have the big weapon to hurt zero maybe maybe not now things get interesting after that as it would be a quarterfinal matchup with either dominic team or Casper Ruud, who I promise you everyone is going to pick. The thing that is going to make me most angry, angry, you know who I'm thinking of. Hold on. Let's make eye contact here. You okay. know who I'm thinking of. Someone is going to send out a tweet saying, I'm taking Casper Ruud, bro, to make the quarterfinals. And it's just going to be like, you know everyone's going to pick Casper Ruud over Dominic Team, just given their recent form, given how good both of them have been. That said... You look for Alex Virev over his past number of majors. Do you know who I'm talking about, by the way? Can we – There's a, my My problem, I don't have a name because I thought of like three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can I just say yes? My answer to your question okay. is yes. Okay. I, but I do want you to put it in the chat who you were thinking. <laughs> okay. I'll text it to you. I don't want to say it out loud because there's a chance that person is listening to this podcast. But you look for Zverev really since the 2019 Grand Slam season. Fourth round Australia, quarterfinals French, first round Wimbledon, whatever, fourth round uh, U.S. Open. Semifinals Australian Open, finals of the U.S. Open, fourth round French Open. He was sick, but he lost to Yannick Sinner. I'm not making an excuse for him, but then quarterfinals in 2021. The point is, all of those concerns about the early major issues, I don't think they're a concern anymore. I do think physically he's figured out, and it's a credit to Jez Green, that coaching staff, he peaks in that three out of five set format. And just again, he's also got that it factor where if the serve is landing, things look really, really easy for Alex Virov. And I'll continue to stand by my, there's five to 10 minutes in every match where he does things. You're just like, that's the greatest tennis player I've ever seen. And of course, it's still only five to 10 minutes, which is why he's not ranked higher. But you look at some of the, you know, the big stats, the, um, 
I mentioned at the top 10 group. I don't think he is a top 10 right now in both uh, hold percentage and break percentage. I'll get that number for you as we go. But you look, he's number three in tennis abstracts, clay court specific ELO. You look yearly, he's number four overall, 18 and eight on the year. Of course, he's done that one thing only three people have done this season. He beat Rafa on clay. Yes, completely different conditions, but that's the background. Make the case. Well, when he's using his entire arsenal, as you allude to, he's just extremely hard to beat. Uh, a weird thing is happening with Zverev right now because he's quietly having an extremely inconsistent season. There's tons of bad losses on his resume that, you know, matches that he really shouldn't be losing. Was that right? Um, oh, I just sent you the name. Was that the name? I know. I know. I just I just nodded because that was one of the names. <laughs> okay, go one on. One of the names. Um, so, yeah, he's got – you're absolutely right. He's been consistent at the majors, and at the same time, he's having this incredibly inconsistent season. Um, I, I don't need to go into more depth on that, but there's just a lot of losses that he's It's just him being won. him, yes. The yeah, Alex exactly. Yerva Vold has appeared. Right, right. My thing is this. like, It's pretty technical with me with Zverev on clay. I think it's usually his best surface, but then sometimes he just – completely abandons his transition game and falls into just the, his overly passive habits where he's just not doing anything to short balls, just massaging them back and not using his forehand. That's what happened against center last year. As long as he's avoiding that, I like him. Uh, the, you know, the Berrettini win in the Madrid final to me kind of had a black eye on it because he double faulted so much. And as long as that continues to happen, you know, I, I think that's a concern. Um, but ultimately, he's when he's going clearly more dangerous. But well, Dominic team is actually just a little bit more uncertain than him. But, you know, clearly Zverev's best level is incredibly dangerous. Um, and, you know, He's found that consistency at majors. It's it's definitely something to take notice of. It was scary how good he was in Madrid. And again, that was a quicker surface, a quicker clay that works better for him. But he was that good. And he did it yeah. all week long. And, you know, for him to go directly from Madrid, transition surfaces to Rome where, you know, I thought it was actually a really high-level match. Kane Ishikori continues to get a little bit closer in form. And, you know, again, against Rafa, it felt like he did have chance. You know, it was a three and four match. It was a two hour match. Like those two were grinding, and it really did feel like he had his chances to beat Rafa again. Rafa just kind of entered that Rafa zone, which is again why we he's the prohibitive favorite always. Um, but yeah, I just think that a little extra time for the forehand it's scary because it, you know he does still have it's not a hitch, but it's just a bigger backswing, and then his backhand is. The, as good as you're going to find on the ATP Pro Tour. And yes, I'm including Novak freaking Djokovic in that conversation. That's how highly I still think of Zverev's back. And again, a reprehensible, just off the court antics. I I want to make that clear. My fascination, I... A guy named Ren Bothenberg, I'll say, he always says, oh, your boy Zverev. I'm like, shut up. I'm like, stop stop, (laughs) stop saying that. Um, But, you know... By the way... mm -hmm. Uh, on a couple after he won Madrid, I I just quickly kind of threw out the fact that I'm still finding it awkward covering him, yeah. and the response that I got in the comments were yes, I'm finding it awkward watching him as well. Yeah. So I I do think you know there are obviously there are some people who uh, who don't share that it's not universal, but mm-hmm. I do think there's a, a a really large group 
that is still finding it extremely awkward covering him and watching him. Us as well, but it's impossible not to in- admire his tennis because it does continue oh, yeah. to get better. And just like, I mean, again, I'm, we already talked about the draw. You look at the numbers for him here this season. You know, his uh, first serve percentage hasn't been great, actually, down to 64.8%, which is his lowest number since 2018. But... First serve win percentage is over 75%. He's holding serve 82.6% of the time. That's above his career averages. He's, you know, winning 40.2% of his return points. That's right off his career high, but he's winning 52.5% of his total points. That's right around his career high. He's peaking. Like, he he does continue to get better, and the numbers steady out at the higher level season over season over season. And again, they have taken the long-term approach in his development. They have haven't sacrificed long-term development for short-term wins, and yet he's had the short-term wins. He captures another Masters title, and he's just got that hubris. Like, he really does, obviously, where he's just kind of like, until he faces Rafa, until he gets to the semifinal and folds. And then it can just go away. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is it like it's hubris truly in that he'll be riding a wave of confidence, and then it's overconfidence, and it's over for him. And that's where it's just— Things are weird, and so, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Any any final thoughts on Zverev? Because he's number three for me as well, because if it clicks, I actually think his upside might be higher than Tsitsipas, higher than Djokovic. And informed Zverev, to me, as you know, is still m- more dangerous on this surface than anywhere else. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I still... I still think that he. I just can't really see it right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say I'm. I'm not. I mean, outside of the um, Madrid win, he's four and three on clay, and I've just again like I'm just not confident that on the surface that kind of rewards the defense a little bit more in the retrieval style. I, I just think sometimes he he falls back on that too easily. Mm-hmm. And what I really like on this surface more than anything are just elite, steady, high-margin offensive forehands that are just going to carry you through. And Zverev just doesn't really ha- have that, so I think he has to work pretty hard. Um, so I- I'm not, I don't really see it, but at the same time, I appreciate how dangerous he is. The last thing I'll say, there's perhaps no player better positioned not named Novak Djokovic to take advantage of Rafa's serving woes than Alexander Zverev whose return of serve is amongst the elite of the elite. And I'm looking here at the mm-hmm. numbers now, these ATP stats leaderboard for Zverev. He is a guy, um, oh, I guess he is just outside that list in terms of hold percentage, I think. Well, he's in the top 15 group, or if you do the 15-15, it's Rublev, Nadal, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and I believe Karatsev has just fallen out of that list, but those were the names that were... The, oh, and Daniil Medvedev, duh. I forgot to throw him in there as well. And with that in mind, Medvedev's your number two seed, team's your number four seed. We haven't mentioned either of them. Two names left to go. I've got one funky one. Again, I think a lot of people are sure. going to mention here, um, but... Again, who's your number four guy? Is it Medvedev? Is it team? Because team struggled a lot of late. It's it's still team. And okay. yeah, he just got killed by Nori and Leon. Uh, he's not looking right mentally. You're not seeing any positive emotion. It's a little bit concerning in light of his comments, in tandem of his comments of just having trouble finding the, the, the motivation and having to reset his mindset. 
I want to preface all of this by saying I think in the long run, team is going to be fine. He's going to find his spark. He's going to recalibrate his mindset. Uh, he'll he'll love the game again uh, on the court. Um, and on that note, there's still time for him to find his form uh, in time for difficult matches in Paris because what what is a major? You get to play some lower-ranked players. You get a day off in between. With that being said, as someone who thrives off confidence to go for big shots in big spots, and also he's someone who doesn't handle fatigue very well, so if there are fitness questions, I just don't see him as someone who can just find form uh, coming off of a layoff rapidly. I really think this is going to be a slow process, but at, at the same time, I just have to respect a guy who is on a trajectory to be Nadal's number one threat in 2021. Mm-hmm. Well, he was he was on that path. I think in the year 2020, team's best level, his his A plus was unbeatable, was the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just have to pay my respects to the possibility that that could come back, although unlikely. No, I have nothing to disagree with you. And again, this is where the lack of tennis I've watched recently on the pro circuit of late, I wish I had more nuance of what has gone wrong for Dominic team. I just, he's lost really early in the events. And it's like, you have like not a big sample size whatsoever. When you look and of course, via clay court, Elo Dominic team still number five. And, you know, just quickly, I just want to throw out the odds out there. The top five odds, Nadal, 1, minus 125, Djokovic, plus 400, Tsitsipas, plus 450, then a big drop, Zverev, plus 1,100, Team, plus 1,200, then another big drop, and we'll get to that category of players next, but there's a reason they don't allow Dominic Team to drop further than 12 to 1, and it's because his peak, if he can find it, is that good on this surface now the problem for him again you look here in this 2021 season where he's had a bunch of nagging injuries and really hasn't been able to play consecutively find his rhythm but he's nine and seven and it's like you lose to nori you lose to sinego you lose to zvirov on clay three sets over isner and you know probably should have lost to fucevic in straights but we're able to escape with that second set in rome it's just concerning and he just again it's it's a vacuum. Like, the vacuum is 2021 injured Dominic team. I agree with you. Long term, he's not going to be like a one slam and now I'm done. Now I'm good. Although you do wonder for a guy who played, eight, and he's talked about the lack of motivation post-winning that slam, but a guy who, the motivation, I'm playing 80 matches a year. I'm signing up for every tournament, doing whatever I can. And now he's won that slam. And he's like, ah, I'm going to play 45 this year. Like, ah, I'm only going to play 10 of <laughs> Fifteen events. Yeah, I don't really. There's need to do more that. for him to accomplish, though, right? Yeah, hundred percent. But I'm saying it, it doesn't need to be rushed anymore. There's not, yeah. and and not to say that there's just always an urgency to Dominic Team. He swings the ball like at the ball with like an angst almost. That's how hard he's swinging. That's how hard he's playing, and that angst hasn't been there this season. And that's why he's not in my top five now. If he finds form, he'll very quickly run into that top five. I'm just concerned about his form. Like, again, is it fair to say that 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 desperation hasn't quite been there? Again, you've been watching things closer than I have. Yes. Uh, He he honestly looks like he's not enjoying himself. He looks a bit desolate. He looks flat. Looks flat. I think that's the that's the best way to put it. He my my example, and I I tweeted this, and I got to plug my Twitter because you have more followers than me now. (laughs) At kill underscore gross. I told you, get on the college tennis beat. There's a lot of followers to be had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so 
Dominic team is in a a third set tiebreak with Sinego in Rome mm-hmm. and literally hits back to back. He's down five three in this tiebreak. He hits back to back for uh, backhands, backhands at 105 miles per hour down the line. Winners. I I start laughing. It's that level of shot where I, I'm laughing. Mm-hmm. Not a fist pump, and that's like <laughs> whoa, yeah. man! Like that. Not even you, one of like the the ones he gives to his box where it's not quite a fist <laughs> pump, but like it's like a I know I got this, dude. Nothing. It's like. Mm. he's not right mentally right now so Mm -hmm. no i i have nothing left to i argue is the wrong word i i have nothing left to add i think you nailed that dominic team although he's not number four to me now there's a big group of players who are all relatively similar in stature the guy do you want to do casper rude first or matteo berrettini are either of them on your list yes uh which one's on your Mm -hmm. list let's start there uh, Rude is higher. Okay, let's go with the Casper Rude argument then. Make the okay. case for why he belongs on this list. Now, again, we're we're stretching here. Do we really think Casper Rude's going to win this 2021 Roland Garros? I honestly want to fire off the take just because, because, like, what a take that would be if correct. But I think it's impossible to deny. I tweeted this out, and I think it got the retweet from you, and that was why I need got the follower boost I needed. And by the way, I'm just going to leak the Oklahoma State men's tennis job to you, and you're going to tweet it out and people are going to be like what the hell like gil gross is on the college <laughs> tennis beat just because again I'm, I'm desperate to get you on that beat with me we would have so much fun down here covering these events that's a story for another time folks but i really do think that casper root is the and i haven't had the chance to talk about this with someone so i'm very excited here casper root is the closest approximation i have ever seen to rafael nadal on clay now he's a righty and of course it's different but you look at the RPM on his forehand, you look at the way he's so disciplined at just moving that backhand around the court. And, you know, similar, you know how it just feels like when you watch Nadal, he's guiding his backhand wherever he wants it to go, it goes. That's the same feeling I have when watching Casper, where it doesn't overwhelm you with power, but the precision, that was a word you used earlier, I'm going to steal, the precision of Casper Rude's backhand. I think it's sensational. Of course, the numbers love Rude as well. You look for him in terms of the e low ratings he is currently number one two three four five six seven behind the five we've mentioned already Matteo Berrettini who's going to come up next I promise you that and then he's right there above guys like Schwartzman above a guy like Rublev shout out to Sebastian Baez who's super high on the clay court elo ratings and I hope makes a deep run hopefully I don't know if he got through qualifying or not I Again, I'm a little bit out of the loop right now. Shout out to Andy Murray, who somehow finds his way up here on this list. That's pretty funny as well. But just, again, you look for Kasparud, what? He's made semifinals or better, right? Of like his last 12, uh, 12 is too high. His last like eight events on the clay. And you look for him here. He, you know, wins in Geneva, beats Shapovalov. He makes semifinals of Madrid, beats Tsitsipas, beats FAA, loses to Berrettini. Semifinals Munich, semifinals Monte Carlo. You date back to last year. Semifinals Hamburg, semifinals Rome. Lost to an informed team in the third round as well and played a fantastic match against Tommy Paul the round before. I mean, you look at his draw here this year for Casper I think he's on that bottom half, right, where he's avoided the gauntlet that is the top, and we mentioned it earlier. He would be the potential quarterfinal foe should he make that round, and they hold seed facing Alex Zverev. 
If he can get through that, I really don't think there's a reason he can't come through the bottom half of the draw and make a final, which is crazy to say, but like, I think he's in... If he's not in the same form right now as Vera and Tsitsipas, he's a half tier below. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely time for everyone to start paying attention to him. I, the guy's made three straight Masters, Clay Masters semifinals. Yeah. It's like, what more notice do you need than that? Um, uh, and yeah, like I, I think the Nadal thing is spot on. And it, it's something that it's hard to notice for people because he's not lefty. Like, yeah. let's be honest, but that's the truth. Um, where he's hitting forehands and it's like, are you ever going to miss because the ball's going two <laughs> feet over the net? Like, yeah, I agree. how are you, right? Like, are you ever going to miss a forehand? Because it looks like it looks like you're hitting into the ocean. Um, and his backhand is similarly heavy, heavy RPM. Uh, one of the, I think, tops on tour, actually, um, in, in backhand RPM. Just this high margin style. He's now paired with it. The fitness, the I'm the upset you didn't confident. say Benoit paired with it. Sorry, go on. <laughs> yes, that's a miss. <laughs> yeah. uh, the the fitness, the confidence, the shot selection, and and now he's just become the total package, and he's in the the spot in the draw where he wants to be. Here's my uh, my my negative angle. I don't know if you can call this negative, but but here's my thing to watch for with Rude. If you look at the players he's lost to, Rublev, Basilashvili, Berrettini, just that's a power type. players. Yep, that's a type. Yeah, that's a type. So I, I guess we should look out for that. Look out for the guy who can really take over a match with their power and perhaps their serve. Um, how is how is Rude kind of absorbing that pace and, and weathering that storm? Something to look out for. If you look at his draw, it doesn't seem like that kind of player is is really in his section. I guess team, uh, maybe, fourth round. Yeah, sort of. Fuchovic, sort of maybe, ish. fourth round? Nah. Yuri Vesely, my boy? No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, not Hatchinov. Um, no, not sir, Bautista. You know. Honest to God, it might be Yana Konofman, who just hits the most ridiculous kick serve you'll ever freaking see. Like, outside of that, no, there's not that power player in this section of the drive. Very much agree with you. And it's just tough. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm looking here at the draws, and yeah, like, in this section, if Zverev's 1A, like, Rude's 1B. Like, RBA's yeah. been great, and that's a physical match. But again, does he have the weapon to hurt Casper Rude? I don't know. And just, I know. He loses that match. I'm, like, so certain he loses that match. To who? Rude or RBA? RBA loses to Rude. I'm, like, uh-huh. very, very confident with that. Yeah, and, like, you need a weapon to beat him. You're absolutely right. And just, that's and that's such a testament to Rude's development that you have to hit him off the court to beat him. He's got that Nadal quality, right, where it's like he's not going to beat himself. It's not like, oh, Casper played bad today and he threw that match away. No, 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 no. You have to be that good to beat him on clay and just— I don't know if any of these other players are that good right now. Like, honest to God, Davidovich Fokina, is that the upset over Hercots? Is that another one our boy, who will remain nameless, is going to pick as well and be like, <laughs> I'm telling you, bro. Um, but I was on him early, though. I, I, I almost tweeted, I almost tweeted, um, look out for Alejandro Davidovich Fokina because he's coming. At Great Shot Pod 2019. That's all I have to say. Go look it up. <laughs> you'll see the takes on Davidovich Fokina. Um, yeah. I think that's a dangerous matchup. Like, I do. Uh, Arthur Cazot, you want to tell me Cazot, he's ready? Like, no. Um, 
I just I really like Casper Root. I really do. Yeah, he goes deep. He yeah. goes deep, but but the question is, what version of Zverev might he face? Absolutely true, and we've already had the Zverev conversation. But speaking of types, speaking of power players, the last guy on my list is Matteo Berrettini. And I apologize. I know I've kept you here. I don't know if I told you how long it was going to take. I feel like you knew what you were getting into. Here, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you sign on the dotted line. <laughs> That's, That's why, it. That's why you're not only a fan favorite, but my favorite, Gil. You know that. But, I mean, the last guy to me is a guy whose matches are on his racket. And I know he's in the tough section of the draw, but, like, Matteo Berrettini's f***ing good, man. Like, we forgot how good he is, and then he got so much crap because of, like, oh, like, he's got the lowest point totals ever of someone who's made the year-end finals. Like, we're going to hold it against him that he finished eighth for some reason. That's ridiculous. That's one of those things that always frustrate me. I just, you know, again, I, I thought Bel- <laughs> Belgrade won, the notable Belgrade one, right, that we all remember so deeply. Uh, he was he was phenomenal. And just like hold percentage, it goes Ranich, Isner, Berrettini, Opelka, Tsitsipas. That's a group you want to hang out with, folks, when we're talking about hold percentage. And he just does have that elite quality on his first serve, I actually think he hoodwinked all of us and spent all of that quarantine period just working on swinging through two-handed backhands. Again, I don't have a number to prove it, but I test-wise, Berrettini has looked immeasurably, immeasurably better, particularly on the return of serve on that wink. Of course, in general, on a clay court, you always like that to negate the returning weakness. You look for him. He's 26-10 and 10 in his last 52, but more importantly, 18-5 and five here in 2021. I mentioned the fact Clay Court Elo, he's number six right now overall. So the numbers like him as well. My eye test likes him. I thought he could have beaten Tsitsipas had he taken that first set. Very well could have beaten Zverev in Madrid. Beat Karat 7, a fantastic match in Belgrade 1. I mean, ready for his losses this year? Tsitsipas twice, Zverev, Medvedev, the aforementioned GOAT, Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, and Nick Kyrgios with worst press, Sasha Bublik in Antalya for the <laughs> first weekend of the season. And, like, you could throw that one out the window. Yep. It's pretty – and he's beaten Garin on clay. Again, I mentioned the win over Karatsev. A win over Chechenado is honestly impressive as well. Like, why can't he win this thing? I'm Not win this thing, but why can't he make a deeper run? Well, uh, again, uh, I-, I said my piece about Novak. Like, I- to beat Berrettini, here's what you got to do. You got to – make him hit a first ball backhand mm-hmm. on on return, which is like the most easier said than done thing you could possibly <laughs> sure. ever say. Yeah. Uh, but but Novak is gonna gonna relish that challenge um and you know likely likely do it really, really well. Then once you get him into a rally, you can expose his movement. Uh so I think Novak does that enough. I don't I need Berrettini to get more aggressive on return. Mm-hmm. That's that's my request of him. Is that like, dude, take a cut. Like, look what John Isner does. Do that mm-hmm. um, on return. So that's kind of my my main critique for him. But overall, you're absolutely right. He's not someone who's going to likely get upset. He's probably going to make it to that Novak match because he is so overwhelming on serve on, on this surface just as much as any other surface because of how great his forehand is and how great his kick serve is. Uh, 
there's just nowhere to hide. Like that's what I think about. Imagine returning against Matteo Berrettini. You can hit a deep block return. He has so much acceleration on his forehand. He generates so much pace. Doesn't matter how deep you hit that return. He can hurt you from beyond the baseline, whether or not you give him any pace because his forehand's that good. He's just the that modern kind of clay quarter who's sustained aggression, who's sustained offense off the forehand is so good. Uh, he's a problem, and that's why uh, he's in this conversation. Behind the base, uh, beyond the baseline, CC John Wertheim. I love. Yeah, it. Um, that's that was rude of me. Thank you for that save, Casper. Rude of you. I agree. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm. It's late. I'm. I am loopy. I am feeling my Matt Zemek right now. Um, we, no. <laughs> what? Uh, no, what? That, I feel like that's a Zemek line there. I feel like he'd be I'm like, loopy? yeah, it's yeah, no, no. The I'm beyond the baseline, or I'm feeling Casper rude right now. Um, yes, like, true, true. On, the puns, a, the puns. Yeah, exactly. The puns is the puns. No. Um, <laughs> hey, come on. Zemek's a friend of the program. We only poke fun at the people we love. Um, I mean, if you want to hear this group he's hanging out with in terms of break percentage amongst top 50 players, it's not the bottom of the list, but here's a two above him, two below him. Hercots, Manorino, two above him. Lloyd Harris, Gael Monfils, two below him. I, it's a concern. I, take a cut is what I have to say. Yeah. Like he's just not doing anything on the second serve return. Like go for something. That's all. The, but the counter is, I do think he's swinging through his backhand more on that second serve return, and it's not yeah. great yet, but it has no, no, gotten right. a little bit better. Yeah, he he's he's hitting the ball like he's not slicing it anymore, which is nice. I I think at least until he gets to grass, so then maybe he should slice. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, and I just think his game again that power tennis transcends surface, and so if he's hot. He can just hit, he can serve anyone off the court, and that's why he's on the list for me now. That's five. I think we've exceeded five even. I'm going to throw four names at you. You tell me if any of them pique your interest, yes or no. Yep. Rublev, Sinner, Karatsev, Garin. Any of them interest you, or not really? Are they kind of a tier below? Uh, hmm. Mm-hmm. Three of them, three of them interest me. I'm not, I'm not a Garen guy. You're uh, not on the Garen bandwagon. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I, I like him in very specific conditions. Um, he, he gets amazing results on clay in altitude. In South America. Yeah, it's altitude. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just gotta put him on a mountain, and the man is unbeatable. <laughs> um. No, he, he's a good player, but I, I not not threatening here in my opinion. Hasn't really gone all that far at the French. I know. Um, I keep waiting for it too because everywhere yes. else it just feels so dangerous. And his ability to find forehands on clay is special, like yes. sincerely special. But okay, we kind of talked about Sinner. Karatsev. Oh, is he the one of the group more than Rublev, more than Sinner? Well, well, well. Let me let me see. Yeah, because uh, I well, Karatsev and Rublev can play each other. So I mean, obviously sure. that. That might be the most intriguing out of the potential, um, not quarterfinals, but round of 16 matches uh, up there with Rafa Sinner. You know, I think, God, they they play so similarly to each other too. Um, I go with Karatsev here because I'm, I would be very concerned about Rublev's ability to protect his second serve. I think his second serve would get smoked. Um, just the, the lack of a strong kick serve really hurts on clay because you can't really go to your slice. Your flat serve isn't as effective either. So I just think the way Karatsev takes 
his return early and aggressive. Uh, normally, when Rublev loses a match, he's his second serve is getting exposed, and that's generally the culprit. And I think Karatsev is a prime candidate to do that. I, I, that's a very good point. And again, he, it's just so smooth. And it's just like, again, he's got the game where he's taking the ball early, or he can play defense six feet behind the baseline, and it's just... I agree with you. I agree with everything you've said there. I think Sinner's got the quality where his ball explodes through a clay court in a way few others do as well. The question is just physically three out of five sets, two weeks, the battles he's going to have. Can he do that? Do we put $1 on Lorenzo Musetti to win this tournament 300 to 1? Like, do we do it or do we just go burn that dollar on like a Reese at the gas station? Mm. You know, as soon as like the balls start coming fast and hard at him, yeah. it's just too much. But I love his draw. I love the draw. I mean, Gafan is like a perfect matchup that's, for Musetti. That's like the one Lorenzo Musetti breakthrough performance here at the slams. He beats top 15 seed David Goffin. Let's go yeah. nuts. Where it's like, <laughs> ah, like if you've been watching, that's not surprising. Um, sorry, that's you know, that's one of my pet peeves. Um, yes. I agree with you. I'm trying to think. I'm looking at some of these odds like, would you rather burn the money or spend the dollar? Corda, 400 to 1. I'm I'm mad that he got Tsitsipas. Very mad. I agree. Is he going to – no, he's the kind of player – I'm mad he got Pedro Martinez-Portero, let's be clear, but yes. Okay, okay, sure. <laughs> Do you think he's the kind of player who is a little bit weary the week after going deep at an event, or do you think he's the kind of player who could go for weeks and weeks on end? Oh, that's a really good question. Oh, I think he's young. He's really, really young, and again, he's got the Tsitsipas. Like, you can find the adrenaline to beat Tsitsipas in that second-round match. Now, as we would hit that third week of play for him, the second week of the French Open, that's where you start to get concerned just because he is young, and he's still working his way through the fitness. So it's interesting, though, because he's got the weapons, right? It's like he's another one of those guys. The speed transcends the surface, and so or the speed of his ball, excuse me. So it's an interesting one to me. Last question for you, and then I'll ask you for your final thoughts. If I offered you Carlos Alcaraz, I mean, right now he's 700 to 1. He's not winning this year. If I offered you, he's plus, okay, it's it's plus 250 odds over under two and a half French Opens in his career. Do you take the plus 250 odds? How much money do you put on that or none? Plus 250 for how many French Opens? Two and a half. Over under two and a half. The over is plus 250. I would take the... God, I, I really like him. I hate to do this. I think I'd take the under. Yeah. I also, you know, I think people are misreading his game. And, and I don't Ooh. pretend to be someone who's watched hours and hours of Alcaraz because I haven't. Um, I've, I've watched him a fair bit, and I just feel like people are comparing him to Nadal, and he's nothing like the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's ultra, ultra aggressive with the forehand. It doesn't have all that much margin on it. The backhand doesn't have a lot of margin either. Um, you know, I'm interested to see what he can do on on quicker courts that reward aggression. He's a great athlete. I love his footwork, but the, the risk that he is uh, – I'm I'm losing the word, but basically the the riskiness of of every ground stroke he hits seems to be something more suitable for a surface that's going to reward the shots that he actually lands. Mm-hmm. Um, I I I kind of look for him to do well at like a Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. No, I, I 
I know he's from Spain. Hold on. I know he's that from Spain and uses a bat a lot. You can't bury a take that good an hour and a half in, Gil. That I'm sorry. Been, that's just, a delicious take. I'm so sad you beat me to that take. I am devastated. That's a great take. <laughs> no, that's a fantastic take. It's Yeah. Inject that in my veins. You're not wrong. His ability to play plus one is why, and just that forehand is so dominant, and he's mm-hmm. just so comfortable moving on the surface. But, like, it's not a horror. It's, there's nothing wrong with that take. Again, I'm jealous. Very, Thank very you. jealous. Thank you. So, yeah. last questions for you, and then I'm letting you go. American who makes it furthest on the men's side. Here's your options. Sandgren, Fritz, Corda, Query, Johnson, Giron, Opelka, Tommy Paul. Oh, and Isner. So I've I've filled out the top half of my of my draw, and I actually are you going to turn Utopia with us here half. at Crack Rackets? Yeah, I I will absolutely. I think okay. I don't think I did so well last time. Yeah, neither but, do um, I. That's why I put my name under a pseudonym, so you never know who I am. Although I think everyone knows I'm put the cube in my chest. Because <laughs> okay, you know, have, well. have you seen the Transformers? You put the cube, Sam. Put the cube in my <laughs> chest, and it's just like I'm just like, what is this? Line? Anyways. Um, so I have Fritz in the third round in the top half. Let me see. Any other Americans, Americans, Americans? Top no, half, it's okay. only Fritz and Sandgren, who plays Darn Djokovic it. first round. Yeah. Okay. And so it's Giron's probably going to be Fritz. Oh, and Tiafa. I forgot to mention Tiafa, who plays Stevie J first round. Okay. Give me— I'm taking Tommy Paul, who plays Chris O'Connell. Well, Tommy the Paul. Yeah, and Tommy I... Paul is maybe the best clay court player out of the bunch, besides Corda, maybe. Yeah, who's just got a tough draw. Yeah. So, Tommy Paul, what's his draw? Uh, damn it. No, I, I, I have it in front of me. I just got to find him. He plays O'Connell first round. I can tell you that much. Okay. And then That's... after that, he plays someone else. Bublik. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Oh, so who's Bublik play first <laughs> It's round? the winner of Medvedev and Bublik. Uh, that's so, you no know, fun. Bublik. No, I'm joking. Yeah, no. Yeah, the um, boob. No. Curious with worse press. Let's agree. I, I have agreed with that forever. Yeah, yeah 100%. That's going to be the first round match. I mean, everyone's going to be watching that. 100%. Um. All right. On the women's side. I mean, we can flip gears. Are you taking, I assume, Fritz? Yeah, Fritz. Yeah, Third o- round. Let's not, not bad. Let's not, let's not get crazy here, Gruskin. Yeah. We're not yeah. going to the round of 16. So here. none make the round of 16. That's what, that's, it's not crazy at all. Seems, seems realistic. All right. <laughs> On the women's side, there's a lot of them. There's okay. too many of them. So I'm not going to name them all. I'll just okay. say this. Sophia Kennan is your number four seed. She's got Ostapenko first round. Does she win that match? No. Can't say I disagree. Anisimova Kudermatova is freaking awesome, though. By the way, that's a freaking fun match because Anisimova semifinalist Kudermatova playing the best tennis yep. of her career. Ooh, is it Ann Lee? I really like Ann Lee's game. She's got I think Gasparian first round. Coco Goff's got a qualifier. Jen Brady last year lost to Clara Tossin first round, which is so funny because now it's like Clara Tossin was a stud. Jen Brady is kind of the player who I'm looking for yeah. in this tournament. I, I really think her game, like, she should be great at this tournament. And, like, I see her doing well on some surface. I mean, you know, she did well at the Australian Open, and, and she's done well at the U.S. Open. I'm looking for this tournament uh, for, for Brady to have a good result. Here's my question. I know you don't have the draws memorized yet. Is Serena Williams the last American woman standing? 
Uh, no, no. It's going to be about Wimbledon, I think, for Serena. I just don't think she has the physicality to play the rallies required of her. And she's just, she's got to get a lot out of her serve. So for the clay court to just, you know, obviously take the speed off of her first serve, I don't see her being the last American woman standing. It's fair. Well, then my final question for you before I let you go. An hour 35, over, under, what you expected to be on here tonight. <laughs> 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 You know, we we started we started uh, at a top five, right? Yeah. So that's how many. That's how long for a player. So I got to go with the under because that would be. I'm bad at math, but whatever five Not divided good. by yeah. ninety, yes, right. So yeah. I should be able to do that, shouldn't I? Yeah, five divided by ninety, one for eighteen. There you go. I just did that. So, I still see the long division thing that like you used to draw out when you were like four, and it's like make the little bracket, put the in the center. The four goes in. You carry the one. Um, so the story I have for you is in third grade, my teacher yeah. pulled me aside and said, Gillen, my full name, <laughs> Gillen, you bombed your multiplication <laughs> test. And I look at her and I go, is that good? <laughs> and she goes, no, no, it's not. <laughs> That feels like it. Meanwhile, I don't think I was ever better than at the counting stuff. Um, I was like, oh, two plus two, four. Four plus four, eight. Eight plus eight, 16. Lock that bad boy in. Um, and I've been coasting off that reputation ever since. But of course, Gil, it is always a pleasure again. I feel like I have reimmersed myself in pro tennis. That's a credit to you. As always, I need to give you a shot. Plug the content, what we can expect from you. We're going to do at least one crossover pod during the French Open. Whether yeah. there's more or not, we'll figure it out. But even though I'm in the lead, plug the Twitter, plug the shows. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, put me back in the lead, please. <laughs> At Gil underscore Gross. Um, Gil Gross, look it up on YouTube. Subscribe to the channel. Uh, lots of content on there, even some bonus content. But the podcast platform is Monday Match Analysis. That is the name of the podcast on all your favorite platforms. Absolutely. I say it to you all the time. There's only one tennis podcast I listen to because I wouldn't feel bad if I stole your takes. It's your Monday Match Analysis. Sincerely, it's been what I've used to stay up with all things. You know I'm a fan of yours, Gil. Thank you, as always, for taking the time. Send my love to Jenna. Don't send my love to Weissman, but as always, stay safe, <laughs> stay healthy, my friend. Oh, you're the best. Thanks. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with my buddy, Gil Gross. Again, you can follow all of his work on his YouTube channel. Just search Gil Gross when you hit that search bar, of course. Be on the lookout for more crossover content between the two of us. He really is one of my favorite people to talk to from throughout the tennis universe. We're obviously, too, I would say pretty similar personalities, but we often see the game very differently, and I'm trying to get him on as many mini breaks as I can throughout the duration of the fortnight. So again, be on the lookout for more crossover content now. You know, again, if you want to keep me in the lead on that follower count on Twitter, I will always appreciate that. But we always appreciate when Gil takes the time to chat. So a huge thank you to him. And again, this is the first of a couple of preview podcasts we have coming down the pipeline to prepare all of you listeners for the year's second Grand Slam. If you have missed any of our content or you want to catch up on all of the NCAA action, just whatever it may be, you can find it all on our website, CrackedRackets.com. You need more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram. 
Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We are at Crack Crack. If you want to message me, I am at Great Shot Pod. Of course, like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, the Mini Break Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, which will all be rocking and rolling over the next few weeks. Of course, a huge shout out as always to the super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff for the f- of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends at Turna Tennis. Remember, you can contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707 to join the Turna Tennis family. But with that in mind, for my fantastic co-host, Gil Gross, our super producers, Fligner and Westoff, our friends at Turna Tennis, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot. And we'll probably see you all later today. Thanks, everyone.